has been around for thousands of years, but Canadians are increasingly turning to new methods such as mobile wallets and contactless solutions to make everyday payments. No matter what the future of payments holds, Interact will be there to help Canadians transact with confidence across multiple platforms and devices. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. Hey everyone, it's Friday, April 5th. I've got Shannon Proudfoot of McLean's and David Reevely of the Canadian Press with me here in studio. Hello to you both. Hi. Hiya. Hiya. Any good, minus that creepy elevator that we're, that we're experiencing, that our elevator has no lights, so you go up and you kind of feel like you're in a coffin. Minus that, any good April Fool's jokes uh, this week? No. There was actually there was one. I am generally against April Fool's jokes, I. certainly in the media, in the media. because <laughs> yeah. all like we have is our credibility, and messing with it is very right. dangerous. Uh, and I'm generally against it from public officials because you know for sort of the same reasons. But Garnet Genius, who is a conservative MP from the Edmonton area, uh, put out a news release the morning of saying that he was bringing a private member's bill uh, to have a day to recognize everything <laughs> because <laughs> everything. Thing, we should pay more attention to the things around us and recognize them. Mindfulness. Yes. And uh, this wow. way, way we could have a day for recognition. <laughs> and I read I really that like and that. I thought this is this is perfect. Good. It is it is poking fun at himself and yeah. the institution without hitting yes. it too hard. If you can make that was your... the good one this yeah. year. Yeah. Like, if you can make fun of yourself through the process, I think that's when it works well. Okay, well, let's get into it. Um, it's been a friggin' big week yet oh again. Honestly, um, a week of Sundays. <laughs> kind of thought we were moving on. But we're going to start, obviously, uh, with the SNC-Lavalin affair because there the has been... keeps on giving. Yes, exactly. Because there's been significant updates um, on this file since last week. So... I'll go quickly here. We started the week uh, with ongoing reaction to Jody Wilson-Raybould, the former a former AG's recorded conversation of her and Michael Wernick, the soon-to-be former clerk of the Privy Council, about giving SNC-Lavalin a deferred prosecution agreement. There were many questions raised, not only about the contents of that call, but also the legalities and ethical sort of considerations around um, taping the call in general without his consent. Lawyers and, and legal experts piped in saying, okay, maybe that didn't break the law formally, but she crossed ethical boundaries. So so that was a thing. Um, and, and, and she responded to these concerns saying she felt she needed to protect herself. So to, you know, to have proof if anything inappropriate was discussed. I think she was alone at that time in her Vancouver apartment or something and, and, and felt the need to tape it. Um, but she did reinstate that it was an, a quote extraordinary and otherwise inappropriate step. So let's let's just talk really briefly because Shannon, you wrote about it. Um, some of those the the call in general, the the most sort of alarming points um, were. I think we kind of know generally it's been reported about um, and and especially it's been said in testimony. Yeah. I mean, because she had, she, and she said she recorded it because she would normally have had a staff member there with her taking notes. And in this case she did not, she was alone in her Vancouver condo. So this was sort of her way of keeping a record. Um, Obviously, yeah, a lot of the story, the outrage and what we're going to talk about after with the next development this week has centered on um, not only the ethics, but sort of the trust aspects of of Mm. recording in this case. To me, the, the biggest takeaway from the call, it wasn't that we necessarily learned much from the taper transcript that we didn't already know in broad strokes from her testimony, because obviously she'd been referring to her own notes. Um, I thought what was significant out of it was that at, at one point, not necessarily any longer, the PMO line had been 
we didn't realize she felt pressured. She did not send mm-hmm. us a memo in that case. Mm-hmm. She did not tell us to back off. And you can hear her in that tape very clearly stating over and over, this is inappropriate yeah. and it needs to stop. Yeah. Now, some people have chosen to read that as ninth dimensional chess, where, of course, she knew she was recording and she made statements that right. would make her sound really good on the record. But regardless of whether you read it as genuine or a bit stagey, it is very hard to listen to that call and assuming that that information got relayed back to the PMO in any capacity, which right. is now an open question, right? Because Wernick says he did he not didn't. go back to the prime minister and tell him about this no, call. Because he went on a vacation the next on day. On its face seems sort of strange, yeah. given that Wernick's whole point in that call is this is very important to the prime minister. He's on this. I just talked to him about it. We got a day or two before he leaves town. If it was sort of a top of mind issue, it's a it's a little bit illogical that there wouldn't have then been a debrief in any capacity afterwards. Yeah. Um, but yeah, after you listen to that call, the point is, I think that the idea that they did not realize she felt pressured. It's yes. a separate question whether that was it was reasonable for her right. to feel pressured or whether this was just normal, robust political discussion. That's a second separate question. But you can't listen to that call and go, okay, they just didn't realize that this was rubbing. The wrong just, way. Right. Yeah, I think coming out of that, certainly if I were Jody Wilson-Raybould, I would have assumed that the prime minister would have known that I felt the way I felt about it. Right. That like, you know, if Wernick supposedly didn't tell the PM. You can believe that or not believe it, but if I were Jody Wilson-Raybould, I would have darn well thought that the prime minister would have gotten that message. Right. She at one point in the call, she even says that her, and it was a case where when I was typing up the transcript, I actually debated about how to express it in the transcript because, on paper, it didn't look the same as it sounded. She she says to him repeatedly, "This is getting re- on really dicey ground," and he says. Uh, I don't think he's, Wernick says, I don't think he sees, he sees it that it way, way, referring yeah. to the prime minister. And she practically shouts, then someone needs to tell, tell him, him, Michael. My, like yeah, she overtly like, says, right. you need to tell him this is on thin ice. Yeah, so. then why isn't, yeah, why isn't someone telling him, Michael? That was pretty, pretty alarming. Um, I, I thought it was interesting after this, it was sort of the first time we started to hear very vocally from more liberal, particularly women um, MPs coming forward and, and, and saying, not necessarily about the SNC Lavalin case more generally, but having an opinion on the recordings and backing Trudeau. So that was sort of the first time we heard from more people from cabinet and caucus expressing their opinions on what had gone on. And that was, it seemed like, the sort of tipping point. Um, well, it did. It was the tipping point that sort of broke the the camel's back in terms of which then led the the prompting of the PM to to say enough is enough. And it, he relied on this trust element, you're out of caucus. And not only you, but Jane Philpott as well. So that was reiterated on Tuesday following a caucus meeting in a pre- press conference to reporters. So it was, it, it felt like that that call was like, I mean, now we know a little bit more that there was a long um sort of a process in terms of trying to get both of them back in maybe in the loop, but but it felt like that call was the final, okay, you're done. Or at least they used it as that. They did, although there is some, some kind of inconsistency there in that, okay, well, Jane Philpott didn't tape anyone, so why is she gone? And so yes. what the Prime Minister and other members of caucus have said is that there was a general loss of trust and that they, they felt that both of those... MPs had in some way expressed that they no longer had confidence in the team or in its leader. And that's why they had to go. And then Trudeau called the recording of the call unconscionable. So I, I think mm. there's sort of mm-hmm. a very specific pointing to that moment as and we heard MPs say that they wouldn't have felt as comfortable having conversations with these colleagues anymore right. if they knew they were being recorded without right. their knowledge. Yeah. But yeah, with the two of them being booted from caucus, 
in somewhat quite different circumstances. If if the the messaging leans too hard on the call being the kind of venal sin here, then the logical question is, well, why did Jane Philpott have to go? Yeah, I was so, wondering. Yeah, I think I, I agree agree with that. And I, if if it is the call that was the broken trust, at least as far as the rest of caucus and the prime minister are concerned, then what exactly is Philpott's offense? I, I do think that, the, as you say, this is the, the straw that broke the, the camel's back. The a caucus does, they do need to trust each other mm-hmm. and they can disagree and should disagree, Mm -hmm. I think it is very difficult to share a team with people who you don't trust at a more fundamental level than that. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I think Jody Wilson-Raybould would argue that she's not the one who broke the faith here, that this was something... literally argued. And trust is a two-way street. And and trust is a two-way street. And they are are the ones who who made our positions impossible. And And that was why... Wilson Rabel said, This is why I had to tape that call because I mean I needed a record of it. Mm-hmm. And I expected something improper would happen in line with all the other things that I felt were improper right. that happened. So I didn't start this. I'm in a position where I have to deal with it. Yeah. But ultimately, I mean I, I think a, a question is why they wanted to stay in caucus. And it's yeah. a question that other people have asked yeah. as well. You know, if you don't trust any of these people, what are you doing hanging out with them? Yeah. Now, it, it's basically the ends of their political careers unless they manage to get reelected as independents and then they get to sit back in, you know, the back corner of the, 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 the chamber yeah. with all the other people who've been kicked out of caucuses and whatnot. It's a very, <laughs> getting reelected that way is a very difficult alley. situation. It's independent alley now. Yeah. I, I wonder if there's a partial if there's a partial answer or at least an ostensible answer to why they wanted to stay in caucus in that letter that Jody Wilson-Raybould, the kind of open letter that she wrote, or the, at least the leaked mm-hmm. letter, I can't even keep track of yeah, that now, was interesting. Um, to her caucus colleagues, I think the day before she was booted, where I think the most standout paragraph was the one that said, you need to choose what kind of party you want to be a member of. So I think at least... Um, in the in the writing or releasing of that letter, again, I don't remember the channels through which it became available, she may have argued that the reason she wanted to stay in was because she didn't want the party to lose its way. Like, she felt that her herself still existing there was maybe a symbolic so, sign that yeah. her, her car, but you're right. Like tough, you can sort of right? see how that had become a, an incredibly fraught workplace for her, for her caucus colleagues. Yeah. But Phil Pott said much the same thing as well in that right. interview with, with your publication with yeah. McLean saying the, the liberal party has to be the best version of itself. Yeah. And that's what I'm fighting for. Yeah. But now, I mean, it's up to the you had These two of them, I think this is yeah. probably what you're about to say. Yeah. You've got the two of them saying that this is the this is what we need to do. And a couple of hundred other liberals saying, yeah, thanks, we got this. Yeah. So they yeah. might well be right, but sometimes being right isn't enough. Yeah. And, of course, they might not be right. And their teammates to get brutal. to decide. And, I mean, ultimately, the prime minister wields the power. So, you know, you can't try to come in and say, no, let's let's go this way when they're going that way. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't, it just doesn't flow like, politics doesn't flow like that. But, um, yeah. So was this done in a, I was curious, a vote, like a caucus vote? It was or? not. Okay. Um, so that is not the way the Liberal caucus does things. So, um, Michael Chong, the conservative MP brought in a private member's bill. I forget what year, but that governed caucus kickings out, which is a stylistic term I've just invented. Um, like and, and in his, too. and it passed his private members bill passed. And according to the, the rubric of that, I think it's, you have to have 20% of the caucus right to the caucus chair or, or whip, oh. um, requesting to boot someone. And then you have a vote and you need to have, uh, 
at least half of the caucus members vote in favor of the boot. Now, the Liberals have responded and said, just, we don't sign on to that. That's not our system. Our, and so in this case, what was done is, and Trudeau has said this, he canvassed caucus members, talked to them extensively. There was no vote, but it was sort of a, a general reading the room feel. And then made the call. The sequence of events was kind of interesting in that when everyone was waiting up on the hill, I wasn't there, but my colleagues were, when everyone was waiting up on the hill knowing this emergency caucus meeting had been called, Jody Wilson-Raybould showed up, walked yeah. in, came back out a couple minutes later, although she went upstairs, I think, to where the offices are, where the prime minister's office would have been, emerged again a few minutes later. Jane Philpott never showed up. And then before the mm. prime minister had a chance to announce it, Jody Wilson-Raybould tweeted, I've just been informed right. out. Mm -hmm. And then you had the prime minister. It was sort of an interesting spectacle where it wasn't a press conference. It was an open caucus meeting. Yeah. So he's speaking to his people. Right. It kind of became campaign style about midway through, but he's invited the reporters yes. in. So it's it it's less... Yeah. Pardon? Yeah, yeah it was, it was, it was kind of sort bizarre. of an interesting kind of way of doing things. Yeah. Guess, an obvious way of doing things. To take up the point that Michael Chong makes, uh, he, he did have this private member's bill and it did pass. And he, he has been pointing out that although this is not the way the Liberal Party has chosen to run its affairs, this is <clears throat> actually the law. <laughs> so this is what you're supposed to do. And the law has other things in it about how caucuses are supposed to organize themselves immediately after elections. The Liberals never did that. Right. And I'm not sure about other other parties. Oh, but it was it was meant to take some caucus management power out of the hands of party leaders and return them return that power to the the elected members to right. kind of rebalance that relationship. And the liberals have just said, yeah, no, we're not doing it. That's this. an interesting tactic. Yeah, right? just that law. No, we don't. No, we're not. We're not. We're not that doesn't suit us. <laughs> that really. one's not mine. Um, I'm not. It's not clear to me though what the mechanism would be for penalties I or following through on that. Don't believe there is one except for the electorate saying, yeah. We don't like not that cool. the governing party is not following a law that Parliament passed. So, you know, let's let's talk about a bit about the reaction. So, the following day, um, we heard you know disappointment. We heard stunned. Um, again, Jody Wilson Raybould took to Twitter like immediately following um, the decision, saying there'd be more to come. Jane Philpot was immediately doing the media rounds, and, and Jody Wilson Raybould, but uh, she appeared on the current. I think the next day. Um, talking about, you know, that, that she regretted it, it had turned out this way and that maybe if there had been a formal apology from the prime minister, that it could have been put to bed. Now, apology would mean that he'd be admitting something went wrong. This was at the Daughters of the Vote event, right? The, the, the reaction came on the Wednesday um, and Daughters of the Vote, there was a group of, what, oh, well, 338... Filling the House of Commons chamber, women, uh, young women who have their sights set on politics, um, all filled the chamber. And so reaction came when Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott were doing scrums outside of the chamber. Well, even when they appeared in it, it was pretty remarkable. Yeah. Like, I just happened to be there early. I'd gone up for the beginning of it. Uh, there were only maybe half a dozen reporters there when they walked in because everyone had looked at the schedule and got, oh, the prime minister's showing up at noon. We'll come then. That's the money shot, Right. But uh, they just sort of slipped into mm. the first row of the public gallery. But for where I was sitting in the in the media rows, I was on the opposite side of them, and you mm. could feel this electricity. Like everyone on the floor saw it because the the, gal the public gallery is really down quite close to the floor of the house here, um, and they're waving and grinning like there was just and because this was before they'd given any interviews. So at this point, they'd been booted out sixteen hours earlier. They hadn't given any interviews. It had been sort of silence, and then they just appeared in this context that like seemed yeah, tailor-made I mean, for sort of 
it, it, it worked advantageously for them and extremely disadvantageously for the prime minister just right. in terms of optics and optics. kind of the emotional content and the mood of the day. Yeah, because it really couldn't have been a worse timing for that event. You you just booted out two prominent women out of your caucus and and then the next day are presenting in front of a whole bunch of women who hope to, you know, get into to, to parliament. Um it was an interesting reaction to um, – so all the leaders spoke. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sheer had, what, a group of like 50 women walk out on yeah, him? Yeah, they walked out. It was They said it was sort of something they had floated in advance, both of the protests. They had talked about it amongst themselves. They said nothing formal had been planned. It was kind of a semi-organic thing. And you could sort of see that in the moment. You could see them standing up. A couple at a time and walking out. And at first we just thought, oh, did everyone decide this was a good time for a bathroom break? <laughs> like you could see everyone in the media gallery Ooh, the kind of going, what is going on? Yeah. Then it, yeah. So they walked out. They said that was a sort of Why? protest. It was, again, it was kind of a disparate thing because yeah. it was semi-organic. But the, the delegates I talked to said it was it was broadly to protest what they see as, they called it a complacency <coughs> on the part of Sheer for a lot of intolerances they are seeing as emanating from and existing within his party right now. Islamophobia, homophobia, mm, right. um, anti-immigrant sentiment. It was a very sort of um, broad coalition of dissatisfactions, I would say, as these things are when you have 300 random people in a room. Um, so that was the protest for sheer. It was a walkout. It was a walkout. And also, as I understand it, I mean, people had different reasons for of course. their own reasons for, for doing the things they did, but also to kind of deny the conservatives uh, the, the, um, the PR advantage of all these women standing up and turning their backs on Trudeau, which is the response that he got from about 50 delegates. And I mean, probably not the same ones, but so Sheer got a walkout. And that means that he can't exactly crow about Trudeau getting people turning their backs to him. Right. It's all, I I mean, the criticism of it is is it's disrespectful to Mm -hmm. both of Mm -hmm. them and disrespectful to the institution. They were kind Mm -hmm. of there as quasi mock MPs for the day. Mm -hmm. And this was not a thing that MPs can do on a regular basis. On the other hand, it's a unique opportunity for all these young women to sit on the floor of the House of Commons and make themselves heard one way or another. Um, Kim Campbell was there too, actually. She got an enormous ovation. Yeah. Yeah. She's awesome on Twitter. She's awesome on Twitter. She is a Twitter star. So another component to all of this. So that was, that was Wednesday, I guess. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and then on Thursday, um, it was revealed by CBC and I think the Toronto Star from unnamed liberal sources that over the past several weeks, uh, the PMO and Jody Wilson-Raybould were in talks to find some common ground, to, to find a solution of sorts to, to put an end to this drama. Um, but it hinged on like five, there's some reports saying four, but five was what the CBC was saying, conditions that she set out that that couldn't be achieved ultimately. So one was um, that the Prime Minister fire his principal secretary, this is alleged, Gerald Butts, um, that she fired soon to be former clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Warnick, that she file um, his, I think, senior, is, is Matthew Bouchard a senior policy? I believe uh, that's his senior Yeah, he's, a, he's a, a senior person in the PMO. Right. And then that that Trudeau formally apologized, admitting his wrongdoing to his caucus, to caucus, and then that Trudeau direct the now Attorney General David Lametti to not give the, a DPA, to not overturn her decision to not give a DPA to SNC-Lavalin. Um and I mean, these are all. Again, this is unnamed sources who that, that was given this information. There's some disagreement about the details as yeah. well, and some of the fine details here do really matter. But the, yes, there are, and we we didn't have this stuff to a, a reportable level. But this right. is not the word about this has been circulating for a while, right? Along these lines, and and so you know, interestingly, two of those people are gone. 
Um, not through firing, but through mm-hmm. retirement and resignation. And then Bouchard's still there. He did not apologize. And I imagine he is not going to direct his new attorney general to follow her decision to not give them a DPA. I see that one as the most concerning, perhaps. She has since denied that. Uh, it, it That story was out there most of the day yesterday. I think she initially, David might know this more than me, given given his shop, uh, I think she initially refused to comment, and that, then late yeah. last night, Glenn McGregor, I think, had her on the record saying, I did not do that, mm. um, because that's obviously the most sort of incendiary of, mm. of the yeah. set of allegations, right. I believe. And all, that's the one where the details actually matter the most, yeah. and where they are least clear. You know, exactly, it was the demand, which she denies making, uh, that Trudeau, you know, direct Lametti to not negotiate mm-hmm. a uh, agreement, or that was the demand that Trudeau stay out of Lametti's decision, right. which as of right now is to not... Mm. As a, the, <laughs> so, the, the fine details there matter yeah. a great deal. Yeah. Uh, CBC has gone back and revised their reporting a little bit to say that oh, that really? was uh, part of an earlier discussion, but not part yeah. of a final list of demands. Right. This Overall, though, this is asking a lot. Yeah. This, yeah these are huge are demands. If, if taken at face value... Yeah. Those this is a lot for a cabinet demands. minister or a former cabinet minister to ask of a prime minister. Uh, and um, as Jerry Butts testified a couple of weeks ago now, Jody Wilson-Raybould was first offered the portfolio of Indigenous services. She said no uh, for significant personal reasons of her own. Um, and his advice was you can't have ministers vetoing their exactly, appointments. Yeah. From a political perspective, it would be very problematic not insurmountable, but very problematic for a leader to accept someone who is not a leader in his or her party setting conditions for the the leader's behavior. And then you can imagine sort of the slippery slope that that would create. Other MPs or or, or cabinet ministers saying, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. And then it leads to yeah. other of them. Ultimatum after ultimatum. Yeah. So, you know, some people are saying this might, uh, now that the final event, let's say, is, is over, the t- two women out of caucus, we might see this kind of fizzle out. Oh, yeah, I'm I, sure this is it. I'm sure this is it. I'm sure this is the last time we'll talk about it. Well, I think we'll see. for the liberals, at least, having them out of caucus gives them a full stop way to stop at answering questions about it. Right. It's not that we're going to stop asking them. It's not that people are going to stop digging or caring, but it gives the liberals a way to say they're out of caucus. Like they're not, they're not our problem anymore. Yeah. We have closed the book on this chapter. We've said all we need to say. We've been, I mean, again, these are, they're talking about, we've been very forthcoming. We, yeah. we waived cabinet confidence. We did everything we, we needed to do to air the laundry here. They're out of caucus turning the page. Yeah. And so it's a way for them close, close to at least stop the conversation from their end. It certainly yep. doesn't stop the rest of the room from talking, I suppose. All right. Last week, Quebec Premier François Legault introduced a draft bill on secularism known as Bill 21. Among other things, it would prevent government employees in positions of authority from wearing religious symbols during working hours. This would affect people like uh, prosecutors, judges, police officers, teachers, and principals. Am I missing? Well, uh, yeah, people in, 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 in positions of authority in the public sector. The proposed legislation would, quote, uh, affirm religious neutrality um, throughout the state. It would include a ban on items like hijabs, niqabs, kippas, turbans, and crucifixes. Uh, it also reaffirms pre-existing legislation proposed by, I think, yeah, the, the, the former liberal government that requires citizens to uncover their faces when accessing public services like um, municipal transit and legal uh, and the legal system. And I 
correct me if I'm wrong, there's a grandfathering clause to this. Mm-hmm. So if you're already in um, the system and you're wearing a religious symbol, you do not have to follow these guidelines. But if you're new, applying new to the position, you do. You won't be hired. You won't be and as, as well, you I won't think be it hired. even goes beyond that in that people who are transferred or promoted would not be protected. So oh. th- that that sort of gives the grandfathering clause a more limited scope because right. I believe that means like if you're a teacher and you're teaching this grade at this school, you're protected. And if you move to another um, school, you're back to square one. So it, it potentially could affect a greater Right. People. I heard um, Lego's press sec on power and politics this week, and it was kind of using the grandfathering clause to legitimize a, a bit of this discussion. But um, so Quebec has a long history, though, of secularism. This is a debate that's been going on strong for about a decade. And this is pushed to separate religion from the state. But what makes, I guess, what makes this particularly new from the other versions? Um, you know, how how has the the, uh, the previous legislation sort of trickled into this state that we're in now? This is, I think, the fourth or fifth attempt at a bill like this. Others have died on the order paper. Uh, one was passed, and I think immediately suspended by a court challenge. So they've they've been trying to do versions of this for a while, and where they all, I mean, some of them get hung up procedurally, but a problem that they all have is the edge cases, and there are a zillion edge cases. I mean, for a while with one of the previous versions, the question was, will you have to take off a, a veil to take a bus? And and the answer after a lot of hemming and hawing and, and pushing and shoving was, yeah, you will. Okay, so at, at what point and do, does accessing a public service require right. you to not be doing anything that's overtly religious? And the answers to that are typically very uncomfortable. And you can it is it is very easy to come up with scenarios where it's hard to know what the right answer is, even if you accept the premise of the bill, which of course a lot of people don't. But even if you do, you know, because it mm-hmm. this this goes after not so much what people do as why they do it. Mm-hmm. I'm not Jewish. If I wear a hat in public, then I'm just wearing a hat. If I am Jewish, then and I'm wearing a hat in public, and I'm wearing it because I believe I have a religious slash cultural obligation to do so, then that same hat worn by the same person becomes a problem. Mm. I mean, my, my grandmother used to wear a kerchief because she was of a certain generation, and not, not all the time, but she did it when uh, to protect her head from the cold. Well, if she's doing it to keep herself warm, that's one thing, but a woman wearing a kerchief because she thinks it's important to be modest when she's out in public for religious slash cultural reasons, that's then suddenly that falls afoul of the law. So what are they going to ask every? It become it becomes yeah. a real problem. And there's also the fact that I think they're they're trying to push hard this time to avoid charges of hypocrisy. For instance, the one thing people would always point to is uh, every time these attempts have been made to enforce secularism in Quebec or support it was okay. You say this is important across the board. What about that big old crucifix you got <laughs> right at the front of the National Assembly there? So right. this time they said okay. Uh, whether this was a, a legitimate awakening or a defensive maneuver, good point. We'll get rid of that. We'll move oh, it. They will. Okay. Um, but but it's it's also even if you say that this is an across the board um, equitable approach to really creating a secular public space, on a pragmatic level, it affects different groups of people differently. Because look at those items of religious clothing or accessories you just listed off. 
somebody could be wearing a crucifix yeah. under their shirt and no one would ever know. You know, they've asked, yes, of course, there are, right. like David said, uncomfortable and kind of semi-ludicrous questions that come up in the press conferences about this where someone said, well, I, I remember, I think it was Les Perot of The Globe who tweeted, they've said there will be no strip searches because someone said, well, how will you know if someone's wearing right. a crucifix or some kind of item of religious symbolism under their clothes? And and so it just, it affects some people more than others because some of those religious accessories you, are more visible than others. What if you have like a patch on your clothes? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't recall. Crazy. I remember they got into like really granular questions. What about dreadlocks? And then I or think tattoo or yeah. tattoos. They said no because if it's anything, somehow they've decided anything on the person, like something that's a part of your body, does not count. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a so they won't be checking for tricky. circumcisions. Oh, yeah, wow. we're getting yeah, to see like I mean, how uncomfortable this gets real fast. Instantly. And yet all at the same time, yeah, you because know, they're taking the crucifix down in the National Assembly. If you've ever been to Montreal after dark, <laughs> there's a great big oh, yes. cross up on Mount Royal. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's there for historical reasons yeah. and it, it is part of the city's heritage, absolutely. Right. It, it is also a giant it's a, Christian symbol <laughs> on top of the city. <laughs> I know I see of, that all the there's time. There's an episode of 30 Rock where, where Jenna, this kind of needy character, is yeah. trying to be, I forget what, what it what it is, but she's she's trying to be cooler or change her identity in some way and she says, I need to get one of those necklaces with the T. <laughs> so maybe they'll just start calling it the big <laughs> Yeah, well, and 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 for some people, like Sikhs, the the um, wearing a symbol of religious symbol is not optional, right? And so then you have you've had questions to the members of this government of, well, are you saying these people can't be teachers? And and some of the calms around this has been not helpful to them. I mean, you had one of their ministers coming out and saying maybe police would enforce this. And then you had a few hours of people on Twitter going, what the hell? People are supposed to call the police about inappropriate head coverings. But then they've also sort of answered glibly, you know, people, people said, well, what about teaching students right now who want to go into education? And they've said, there are other jobs for them. (laughs) And so there's this sort of sense that they're trying to minimize this impact on, on people. Um, so it, it's been a bit of a messy rollout for them, I think. And it's and he, he, Legault's also invoked the notwithstanding clause. Sure, here. that's another significant difference here. So it means that that the government can can do this even if it runs runs contrary to the Charter, Charter. of Rights. So it's meant to be sort of a it's kind of a, a preemptive preemptive move, yeah. I guess. Certain to kind parts of, get over of the Charter hurdle. of Rights, however, Certain, not like all freedom, of the Charter. Like and I think that's religion. where some of the True. some of the possible, like you can already see like sort of legal experts on Twitter yeah. kind of working around the contours of it and seeing where they still think there might be legal challenges. Like freedom of religion. Uh, yeah, well, that is covered, but there are other, I mean, I, I think one question that is going to have to be addressed as well is all the things that most people uh, sort of accept as normal that have their roots in Christianity. I mean, we have statatory holidays, That's both provincially and point. federally, that are some some of them Easter's are explicitly Christian, and others that are have their roots in Christianity, even if they're not explicitly. Like, so, I mean, the very calendar we use is you know rooted in the Catholic Church. So that's a good point. Mm-hmm. At, at what point is it just well, this is the way we do it, and it doesn't really mean anything religious? And at what point is it for religious reasons and therefore unacceptable? Heard, it's very fundamental. Yeah, I heard a weird comment again from this press sec of, of Lego. He was saying like, well, you know, Christians had to, um, to had to deal with this years ago when we asked nuns to unveil themselves, um, and so we're just asking other religions to do the same, you know, and uh, free yourself of religion. This is like such a bizarre argument. But anyway, so the federal parties seem to be uh, relatively aligned 
uh, on this issue, particularly the liberals and the NDP. I mean, I, I'm sure I think we all could have expected that. Um, Scheer did weigh in and, and condemn it, um, saying his his party would would never introduce such a bill at the at the federal level. I think we were all kind of that was the response we were um, or the reaction we were waiting for because he he has been trying to sort of court voters in Quebec and um, and so you could see him probably trying to find a, a balance of where to stand on this. But it will be interesting as we go forward, like, is it re- the responsibility of the federal government to come out and say, no, we don't They don't seem particularly eager to really get into this fight. Mm-hmm. Like, it's one thing to sort of make statements, um, you know, c- condemning it or, or, or sort of critiquing it. They don't sound like they really want to Get get their fingers dirty because it's it's worth it's worth noting the the CAQ government was just elected in October. They campaigned overtly on this. This was yes, not some sneaky thing that yeah. they they yanked out of their back pocket. I think polls are running about sixty percent of Quebecers approve of some measure along yeah. these lines. There's a although, lot of support. Although so, the yeah. regionality of that is is kind of important and interesting in that it sounds like most of the support is from small rural areas, smaller municipalities. Where the irony is, there are many fewer people who would be affected by this because a lot of Quebec's um, new Canadian population, visible minority population, is in Montreal, where support is much lower. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of a disconnect there between the places where they feel that this is important for protecting Quebec's culture and identity and the places where people actually reside that will be affected by this most directly. Right. Okay, we'll see how that pans out. Um or last, last, last topic here. We are saying goodbye to the Canadian Women's Hockey League. The board of directors has announced that they will be shutting down operations starting May 1st because the business model is, quote, financially unsustainable. The CWHL has had or had six clubs throughout North America and China. Um, I read that they were just coming out of their, their most successful season to date. Like they were on a, a really positive um, trajectory, which is why I think a lot of people were surprised about this news, particularly players who were unaware of it closing down. Um, so, and, and I mean, as I read more into this, it's staggering. Players were paid for the first time in 2017 and, and received about 1500 to $7,000 yeah. for honorariums, basically. Honorariums, like, basically. Not enough to live on. Like it's charity um, for the season. So, and on top of that, I was talking to our producer, Aaron Reynolds, about this because his wife used to play professional hockey. They have to maintain and buy their own equipment. So, yeah, calling it professional, I mean this not in a denigrating right. way at all is sort of a euphemism given how few resources these people have Absolutely. to work with and that they're playing for passion, really. Like, they really are. Exactly. And it's, I mean, they did say in their press release, like, this is not, like, the hockey is incredible. It's just that this model, this, you know, is financially unsustainable. So the model they're talking about, it's a not-for-profit one. Um, it, again, it felt more like, I think, a cause than a league. I guess it just goes back to the sense that um, people aren't watching women's sports, so there's not, or women's hockey, and so they're not getting the advertisers, they're not getting the eyeballs, they're not getting people um, wanting to, to pitch in and put some money towards this and sponsor women's hockey. Yeah, that's always the argument. This goes around and around. To me, it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing because I always point to every four years at the Olympics, people get plenty excited mm-hmm. about female athletes when they're wearing our flags on their backs, mm-hmm. whether it's the mm-hmm. women's soccer team doing amazingly well or women's hockey. So it just depends on the context. So in that, through that lens, and this is obviously something I feel passionate about. I wrote about it a lot at Sportsnet. So you know, maybe I'm coming at it with a bias. The, oh, the, the argument is always that 
the game is less exciting or there's just not a market there. And it's basically a capitalist argument. If people wanted to pay and go, if the product was attractive, the money would be there. But I think that really is it gets that is such a limited view as to be a bit nonsensical because mm-hmm. under the right circumstances, people care plenty. The circumstances aren't there. And so then it becomes a chicken and egg thing. If if these leagues run on a shoestring and then what we're seeing now, so with the Canadian Women's Hockey League shutting down, there is a competing, essentially, league that still exists, the, the WNHL, now. which there had been a lot of talk. I think this is part of what made the shutdown of the CWHL. I'm right. going to I'm gonna get all the acronyms yeah, screwed up. Right. I need to write yeah. them on my hand. Um, part of what made the shutdown so shocking is that as recently as January, there had been really public strident talks about merging the two because hmm. what people were saying who care about the game was this makes no sense. Like we we have we have right. two groups doing the same thing. They could be sharing resources. They could be sharing a talent pool. They could have a broader range of teams competing. And so there have been serious talks about a merger, possibly with the financial support of the NHL backing in some way. And then all of a right. sudden one of the leagues folds. So now you have the WNHL saying that they're going to pick up or, or in some way reinstate two teams in Toronto and Montreal. Yes, I read but that. But in yeah. the meantime, there's been the collapse of all the infrastructure. So, like, to me, this is, I don't know, this is so glib. But you know the Jerry Seinfeld thing about how <laughs> when you cheer for sports, you're really just cheering for laundry. Like, you're cheering yeah, for yeah, your yeah. shirt yeah. to get the other guy's shirt. Yeah. Like, I honestly <laughs> believe that to some degree about sports. And this starts to sound very quickly like a stoner argument. But, like, we only care about the team we care about because they're ours. And it, the whole thing is an artificially built ecosystem, right, where our team of red guys plays the team team of blue guys and we like the red guys better because we've been told to Mm. and we only care because it's there and because we go to the games and because there's a lot of hype around it on Twitter all of that is sort of inorganic in a way so you could see a way if you very deliberately and smartly built that around a women's game that would all be there like that's not a state of nature that's a function of like marketing and money and sexism and people giving a crap but if you continue to have women's leagues that are collapsing under their own weight or run poorly or shut down when they appear to be on the verge of merging with another and making something bigger, it's just cannibalizing. I know. My understanding is that one of the things about the CWHL is that it was centrally run. It was was a a league where the league owned the teams. Right. uh, As opposed to a franchise model where there are individual teams in multiple cities that kind of come together and and have like a central sort of federation. But with local ownership run uh, uh, with ownership in the hands of people who are from those communities typically yeah. or at least have a strong investment in those communities and understand them a little bit better. I mean, there's the, the I mean, this is this is young men, but the junior hockey model, people totally. really believe in, who are fans of, of junior hockey, they really believe in their local team mm, yeah. and they feel a connection yeah. to it. You know, the Ottawa 67s, the... Went to a game the other Yeah, the, the, you know, teams in Swift Current, teams in, in oh my God, like, in my every hometown. town. Like, that's Victoria the place Ville. to be on Friday night is at a Hounds game. Yeah. Like, it is a big deal. There's yeah. a huge sense of ownership. And, the, and I think it's hard to promote that sense of connection. I mean, partly just it was relatively new and some of the, you know, the junior hockey boys hockey teams have been around for decades and decades but when it's being governed by a central league office as opposed to someone from here or mm. someone with an investment right. in this place if even if the, the owner is not actually a local th- i think you en- you end up with less of a local connection yeah. and also when the whole when there's a problem, the whole league goes down at once, as opposed to that's being true. able to Which have a franchise fail, and that's right. unfortunate, but ever, everybody else still goes on. Which is what we've seen. So you got more stability. I agree, though. There's this kind of vicious cycle of like, well, no eyeballs, so we're not going to invest. But you right. could just invest, and then you'd probably get the 
eyeballs, right? Like, and then we have endless stories about about the shoestring budgets, the underplayed players, the leagues collapsing. I kind of wonder if if women's professional sports becomes like you know how every neighborhood has that one storefront or restaurant that like the 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 business goes bust every six months <laughs> and someone new comes in and the yeah. location just seems cursed and so you just start to think whatever goes in there is yeah, is like a subpar product. I wonder yeah. if that just feeds into the notion that this is kind of this anemic thing that's never going to fly. Minor league sports. It can be fragile as well. I mean, there's a whole American minor football league that just went bust the other day. Um, and for complicated reasons, also centrally owned league. But football failed in America. What? <laughs> what? I yeah. mean, the NFL, of course, is still so super true. powerful, but they yeah. these people could not make a go of it. Yeah. And so these things yeah. happen. The uh, the in soccer, I mean, a team I know something about here in Ottawa, they yeah. th- it's a minor league soccer team. They've moved leagues. They're trying right. to find a model that works just right. The team still has the same name and it's still there, but uh, exactly what the product is varies. Yeah. And that's soccer. It is comparatively cheap to do. Yeah. Um, and it, has more of an audience. I think it does, though. It opens up for the National Women's Hockey League in, in the States to, um, you know, potentially maybe, the, again, come this way or for other groups to in, invest. Because I, I think there it's something to be said that, that the trajectory is looking pretty good. Women People are interested in women's hockey. Um, I, it is fun. I was reading about... Um, like Phil Kessel and his sister Amber, I think Amanda. Amanda, um, and how because he used to play for the Toronto Maple. He's now is the Pittsburgh Penguins, but he used to play with the Leafs. Anyway, his deal for you know four years or something at Pittsburgh is like nine to ten million dollars. His sister's is a something like I don't know, crazy like twenty twenty six thousand dollars, and she's the highest paid player in the league. She's like, the star. Isn't that crazy? It's the salaries are yeah. just and and I do, like. I mean, this is a separate problem and a separate grad student seminar, but yeah. I think that goes to our outside interests. Like, we think, oh, if those people are being paid a pittance and they have to work right. one or two day jobs and then go to their game, like, do we want like how good is that product? Mm-hmm. It's and, so true. And so it's just, I just feel like the whole thing is a snake eating its own tail. There's like a celebrity thing to it, too. I want to yeah. watch the best of the best, yeah. And, and, I mean, some of it's organic. You would, you would be, the NHL did not start out by paying people tens of millions right. of dollars to play hockey um, and y- it could grow and then you get sponsorships and then you build a culture around it and then more yeah. young women in this case are interested in it and and young men realize oh hey this is pretty good I can be a fan mm-hmm. of great yeah, women's hockey fun. too mm-hmm. and that does take time it doesn't just come out of nowhere someone yeah. has to want to do it uh, and invest in it yeah and invest in it and and so on and yeah. that that absolutely could has happen just, yeah. I hope will happen yeah. I think the NHL has, has now said but you can't magic the, it out of nothing no I guess the NHL used to do $50,000 to, I mean, even these amounts of money sound just like a pittance, $50,000 to the CWHL and 50000 to the WNHL. And now they've said they're going to shovel $100,000 yeah. at the one remaining league. Mm. So I guess there's some hope yeah, that they can have hope. a little more support and expansion. Um yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's, it, a, it's kind of a sad story. <laughs> it is. It's yeah. a sad story. I was reading yeah. a good piece in the Globe though, saying that you know women's tennis. People thought no one wants to watch women play tennis, and right. then now That's it true. is just about as big as men's tennis. Yeah. Women's golf was nothing. Yeah. Nobody wants to watch women play golf. Oh, it, actually, turns out, given time, lots of people yeah. want to watch women. And play it was golf. Serena Williams who had, you know who pushed for that equal equal pay and at some yeah. of the. Um, those big events. Arguably the best player in the world. In the world. Period. 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 Okay, that <laughs> that puts a period on our day. 
Um, that's all. We'll see you next time. Twitter handles, please. I am at David Reevely. I am at S Proudfoot. And I am at Turnbull Sarah. See you next time. Fast, safe, and reliable. Interact eTransfer is one of the best ways to send, request, and receive money. In fact, Canadians used the service to complete 371 million transactions in 2018. That's nearly 11 times the population of Canada. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.